I'm Paul DeGarabedian, Senior Media Analyst for Comscore with Many Screens Big Picture, my newly relaunched podcast. And I am thrilled today to be speaking with Brandon Katz. Brandon Katz is the Senior Entertainment Reporter for Observer, covering the film and television industry. In his role, he tracks the latest trending news, major moves by Hollywood's power players, and everything from blockbuster cinema and prestige Oscar bait to the streaming wars and exclusive scoops. After five years covering pop culture, he can confidently say that short of being a professional lottery winner, this is the best job in the world. When not inhaling endless screeners like a vacuum cleaner in a frat house, Brandon is an avid sports fan, aspiring bourbon connoisseur, voracious reader, and a developing podcast broadcaster. That's a tongue twister. He also really loves dogs, like I do, more than people almost, which isn't relevant in the slightest, but always worth mentioning. Brandon, I agree, dogs are the best. How are you today? I am doing good, sir. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. It's funny that people at home don't know, but we've actually had a working relationship for three years or so. So this is a long time in the making reunion of sorts. It's a reunion of sorts. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's certain things that when we're talking on the phone about different stories, about developing movie stories that we never really get into the, the, you know, the backstory on each other. Like, I don't know as much about you as I should. I know certainly you're a fantastic writer. <laughs> uh, you're very high profile. When you tweet, people listen like EF Hutton. Uh, it's just amazing. So tell me a little bit about, first of all, why do you love movies? Where did that come from? And then how did you get into journalism? Or was it one before the other. Did you get into journalism, then love movies? I suspect you love movies for a lot longer than before you started writing and we're in the journalistic world. Well, first, let me start off by saying you are very altruistic in your compliments, and I greatly appreciate that. Can you just follow me around and be my hype man in everyday life? I'm happy. Way to happy to do energy, it. Brandon. You got it, man. Just have me on your phone. I'll do it virtually. You just open up an app and I'll be there talking to anyone who will listen. I love it. All right. So to your question, uh, my parents actually got divorced when I was about five or six years old. And to spend quality time with my brother and I, they each resorted to their own activities. My father took me and my brother to a minimum of two movies a month for about a decade. And my mom would set up these kind of at-home movie theater nights with popcorn and kind of like, you know, decorations in the bedroom to just make it feel like a movie theater. So that is definitely where the passion was cultivated. At the same time, from when I was about four to 14, I actually was an actor. I was in local plays and commercials and student films. And then in high school and college, I did stand-up comedy. But I soon realized as I got older that perhaps a full-time salary would be more beneficial than free Bud Lights at open mic night. So I tried to figure out how can I use these passions that I've had all my life in a professional setting. And that's what led me to communication and media in general. And so since graduating college, I've been a pop culture reporter. I started off in sports, transitioned into entertainment, and have really just been so lucky to essentially get paid for being a proud couch potato. <laughs> well, that's the best of both worlds or all possible worlds. I love that. This is kind of a common thread for me. I find a lot of people found solace and growing up in some environment where they are 
maybe having some familial issues that then finding a bonding ritual with your parents, your siblings through movies and even television, of course, is really important. But then I think it's really interesting too, that you've acted. So you've really been on all sides of this. So do you think by having acted, by having those insights, does that help you better understand the business side of the business? Or is it just there in the back of your mind informing how you report on things? It's more so in the back of my mind, as much as I would love to say that I was on, you know, hundreds of sets. I, I was really doing very minor, low-key kind of amateur uh, work in while that was a great experience and does expose you to some of the behind the scenes kind of how the sausage is made aspects. I think what we're doing, you and I discussing box office of, you know, a Christopher Nolan movie is on such a exaggerated, massive level that they're really not too comparable. But I also do think kind of understanding how comedians come up and and performing in New York City and Washington, D.C., that did give me more of an understanding and appreciation for comedy and kind of the Saturday Night Live type of pipeline. Really interesting. Um, How did you parlay your love of movies, particularly into a career in journalism. So it was really kind of practical. As you've said, I was in high school and I always loved writing essays. I was the kid in English class who actually had a thriving essay writing business. It was $10 a page, money back, if you ever got lower than an A minus. Of course, I never had to give a refund ever. (laughs) But so I was thinking, I'm like, okay, these are my passions and these are my skills and what I'm good at. How do I make that into a career that's realistic? Because as much as I want it to be the next Saturday Night Live star, I knew that that is not what generally happens. So I really just made it a point to involve myself in a diverse mix of cross-platform media activities. In high school, I was one of the editors on both the literary magazine and the newspaper. In college, I obviously majored in communications and then had internships with ESPN Radio, NBC Sports in in Washington, D.C., the New York Post. So I was constantly getting as much experience as I could in the field, and that allowed me a little bit more than perhaps the average employee to hit the ground running when I finally did get a full-time job after college. So it was really a practical and kind of strategic approach for how do I combine my passions and my skills with a real-world career. That's, I think, a really smart move. I, I actually did the same thing. I, I, I recall- well, You're when, a really smart guy, Paul, so that doesn't surprise me. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, you're, you're being too kind, but I actually similarly- I wanted to be a filmmaker. I went to Long Beach State, radio, TV, and film. Remember, I have radio in my degree. And then (laughs) I went to USC and got a master's degree from the Annenberg School in Communications and very quickly found myself in a job that was really great because I had great mentors, but at an architectural firm. I was a marketing coordinator. This was a long time ago. And I could not get a job in the industry. I wanted to be a filmmaker, a writer, all of that, but I just could, I knew I wouldn't break in, but I had, I had a passion for the business side of the business while simultaneously loving filmmakers and films and all of that. And so I like what you said, you were kind of pragmatic in your approach. Like if I'm not going to do this, I'm going to somehow be associated with the creative side of the business, even if it's talking about the business side of the business, because if you have a passion for movies, I think that comes through in your writing. What's one of your 
favorite pieces that you've written where you were able to dovetail your love of film perfectly with the business side of the business? Or is that every story for you that you write? One that immediately comes to mind. It was either late 2018 or or sometime in 2019. Mm -hmm. Saturday afternoon, didn't have any weekend plans. Threw on a Christopher Nolan movie. That (laughs) avalanched into the next Christopher Nolan movie. And suddenly I found myself at 4 a.m. having watched essentially half of his filmography. And I was typing away furiously at essentially what was a retrospective rankings of his 10 features of the time that not only talked about why each movie had its strengths in it and its weaknesses, but what they represented to his career in terms of his evolution into what we now know as a blockbuster auteur and arguably the most powerful filmmaker in Hollywood. And that was just... It wasn't planned. I didn't talk about it with my editor beforehand. I just showed up Monday morning. I was like, hey, by the way, I have a 3,500 word Christopher Nolan ranking. (laughs) And so that was something that was truly born out of passion about being on the couch and just crushing his movies back to back and about observing what it meant to him as his career evolved. And borrowing quotes from other critics and media analysts who kind of observed, wow, Christopher Nolan has arrived after Memento, and wow, here he is doing blockbusters with Batman. So that was a really fun piece to work on that still gets clicks to this day. And I'm in New York where theaters aren't open, but once they are and I see Tenet, I will be updating it to add the 11th film to the ranking. I like that a lot because you do have one more film on the docket that you have to include in your uh, analysis. And I think that speaks volumes to you because – It'd be like me sitting around drinking scotch and writing a paper on 10 different scotches in an afternoon on a Saturday. That shows true passion. But you did this for your outlet. And I want to kind of segue into when you got into journalism and you were writing, how do you get your foot in the door for those listening? Not to give away too many trade secrets, but how do you get your foot in the door? I mean, I know you're an observer. Have there been other other outlets that you've worked for? how did you evolve to where you are at a top-notch outlet, very high-profile uh, situation for you? So listen, I'm going to be completely honest because I'm not someone who's really driven by ego. There are far better writers than me in the world. There are far better writers than me in the field. And I am absolutely lucky and fortunate that I have the position that I do have. I am no way, shape, or form saying that I am the industry leader. But what I will say for myself is that I was relentless in terms of reaching out to everyone that I respected in the industry, whether that would be a writer, an editor, a producer, whatever. Box office analyst. Exactly. So so even when I was 18, 19, 20, 21, I was reaching out to everyone for like, hey, would you give me 10 minutes to pick your brain? And not only would that be helpful in terms of gathering tips on how I can navigate the minefield that is modern day media, but it also started to help me grow a network of contacts that could perhaps introduce me to the person who was hiring, put in a good word with the person that was hiring. So I was very, very committed not only to building that network, but to also making sure that for a young person entering this field, I had the single best resume that was on their stack. So the combination of both put me in the right position. And and I got to know who the right people were, and they were kind enough and maybe saw a spark in me that convinced them to pass me on to the next gatekeeper or level. So it was a combination of relentlessness and being very lucky. 
and passion, Definitely right? Passion. It comes through. I know the first time we spoke probably three years ago, I got a call or an email. I can't remember. And then we spoke on the phone. I'm like, damn, that guy is really into movies, maybe more than me. <laughs> and we just hit it off. I think too, uh, you find that people who have passion, you gain automatic respect through that. You personally with those who are maybe in positions of, of power or whatever, there's a lot of noise to break through. So if somebody comes along such as yourself, who just has that genuine authenticity in terms of their passion, that's worth more than any resume to me. And somebody could have studied this and that. And I, by the way, I'm my dad was a huge academic. And if I didn't go to college, he would have killed me. <laughs> but it's really about the passion. I see that in you. And I, when you talk about Christopher Nolan, I think if you were a filmmaker, you would be Christopher Nolan. Like, <laughs> don't we project, right? I'll watch a movie and go, damn, I wish I had made that yeah. movie. Or even a performance. Like you look at a performance by an actor and you go like, wow, that's just amazing. And that's the inspiration. And then if you're not in that rarefied era, being able to be on the big screen, you can at least talk about it and give the proper analysis and respect and overview for those who may not be in the business, who for them, it wasn't like a thing. Everybody has their own passions, but I love how you turned your passion into something that well, right. It's not work, right? If you love it. <laughs> I never get the feeling that when you're writing a story, like, oh God, I got to write another story. I feel like you're, this is so much fun. I can't, you like the, you know, sparks are coming off the keyboard when you're writing. Well, I will say, listen, I love what I do. I think everybody's job, regardless of how you feel about it, it's, it's still a job. It's, it's still work. But I will say that last year I was in Toronto for the Toronto Film Festival. I had just gotten out of a screening. I had three hours to go before a scheduled interview with talent. I was eating these delicious dumplings from a, a wonderful food truck that had been set up, walking around a foreign country's huge city. And I was just thinking to myself, man, this is a moment of pure euphoria in which I cannot yeah. believe that I'm being paid to go to a different country, experience their culture in their city while seeing movies and then interviewing the people that, that made those movies. So that was a real moment of true pleasure. And, and I was very grateful to have the opportunity to do that for sure. You're like David Byrne. How did I get here? <laughs> I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's I, I feel that way every day, Brandon, I've been doing this for, oh my God, a really long time since 1993. And every day I pinch myself that this is what I get to do that I get to talk to you, that I get to talk about movies, that I get to have this podcast where I talk to passionate, really smart people who just love this business. And now I, I think this is a perfect segue into the pandemic. So we'd be remiss if we didn't le at least bring that up and how that's changed the way we do business, the way you do your coverage, the emphasis of your stories and how that has all affected you. And, and I want to know from a journalistic perspective and specific to you, how has the pandemic affected your work, your point of view, even your workflow? Like, does it make it uh, more challenging? What is it about this situation for journalists in particular? And I think I know the some of the answer. How has that affected the way you work and your point of view? Now, I'm lucky in the sense that 
covering the entertainment industry can mean a lot of different things. It doesn't just have to be boots on the ground face to face. We can write a review of Netflix's Teenage Bounty Hunters, which I really liked, or I can write a, a kind of think piece about Judd Apatow's career when The King of Staten Island came out because I got the advanced screener. So in that sense, I do have other avenues that I can go down in terms of producing content. But of course, COVID has thrown the entire world into a, a huge vortex of uncertainty and in some many cases, tragedy, unfortunately. And of course, yes. the entertainment industry has been really thrown for a loop because it has upended the very way traditional business is conducted. So we've had to adapt to that by essentially learning step-by-step step, right alongside the studios, what is the new normal? How do we interpret, analyze, and review the new normal? What does this new way of business mean for now? And will it stick around in a post-COVID world? So figuring out those questions, talking to intelligent and helpful, insightful sources such as yourself have kind of help smooth over some of the rough edges of the transition. But we are still in the thick of this thing. Movie theaters across the country are still very slowly opening up. We've, As we've seen with Tenet, we are very far away from what a normal movie-going experience would be. So we are having to struggle and find new ways of delivering commentary and insight to interested readers. And that has been a very unique process uh, in terms of workflow. You know, I went from going into the office every day to starting out in my bed, moving to the couch, moving to my desk, then moving on the floor, right. then like 10 minutes back on my bed. It's been more difficult in that sense and less difficult in the sense that I no longer have to commute, which I am thankful for. <laughs> you are commuting from the couch, yeah. to the kitchen, to the bar, in your house. Traversing a vast distance. What this brings up to me is I haven't been to a movie theater since March. I haven't sat in a movie theater like many people. And I know that it's up to the individual whether they want to go back. And I completely respect that. The happiest day for me will be when I go back into a theater, whenever that may be. And I'm in LA. So we, at least as of our recording, I don't have the option to do that. But the movie theater is like a, a palace. It's something to me that means so much. And it really hurts that that has been one of the casualties of this situation. Now, of course, Keeping in mind, it's a tragic situation. But what's happened is some of the things that bring us together, bars, restaurants, movie theaters are communal yeah. and immersive. And that's just one of the cool things about it. But right now that's created a challenge. I think movie theaters will be back. Do you feel, though, that there were issues or things going on those conversations have been accelerated. How do you feel as a film fan, a movie lover, all that about where this business is going? And is it a good thing that some of these conversations and strategies have been accelerated? Yeah, this is a question that my friends and family ask me all the time. What is the future of movies in America? Now, what I have said to everyone who's asked has been, there is essentially a century of cinema history that we can look back on and see that movies have survived literally everything that has been thrown at it, whether it was the Great Depression, whether it was war, whether it was any other sort of unrest in America. Now, having said that, we were already trending in this direction, but I do believe this pandemic has expedited 
the leapfrogging of traditional linear entertainment by streaming and direct-to-consumer business. That doesn't mean movie theaters are going extinct. There will always be a place for blockbuster entertainment at the movie theater. But what I think you are seeing, what we will continue to see, is mid-sized movies such as, like we said before, The King of Staten Island, A Troll's World, or something of, of that ilk continuing to go to streaming and or premium video on demand. I think due to the sheer economics of this shutdown, we will obviously see a large chunk of American movie theaters probably close for good. That will play a role. And whether or not it's good or not. Now, I am a theater first individual. The sticky floors, the broken chairs. I love it. I'm with you. The jerk texting in the back. It's all part of the character (laughs) and personality of the movie going experience. But I understand that the modern marketplace is built around convenience and comfort. And we have to adopt- And safety. Yeah, and safety. And absolutely. Health. Absolutely. So while I do think the theatrical marketplace will shrink, and I am sad about that, I am happy in the sense that we have never produced more content across more platforms than ever before. There's never been a greater opportunity for someone to get their concept made and put on screen, whatever form that takes, than we are now. So just like anything, there are pros and cons. My hope is that the movie theaters will be able to rebound to a certain degree and that you and I can go out for a nice bourbon and then go Hell see yeah. the latest Avengers movie in the future. But uh, until then, yeah, streaming is the dominant form of entertainment today. I agree. But what is the sudden and amazing rise of the drive-in tell us, right? Because over the summer, our Comscore data shows like last year, drive-ins in the summer account for 3 or 4% of the box office. This summer, 90%, you know, 80, 90% of the box office. People have all this stuff at home. They got in their car. A, I think because they want to get the hell out of the house. (laughs) And B, they wanted the communal immersive experience in a way that they felt was safe and healthy and smart for their family. That's pretty interesting to me. If you listen to people say, streaming is the best, why would anyone go to a theater? Then why would people get in a car and go to a drive-in when they have all this great content at home? It's kind of an open-ended question. I think we know the answer and it's up to the individual. But that said a lot to me and I, I really have to commend the drive-ins who have been somewhat marginalized because, well, first of all, real estate's very expensive and have drive-ins all over the place is not really viable. But those that are up and running, along with some distributors like, well, IFC and others who really supported that through the whole COVID situation, they created a summer movie season of their own. To me, that was really interesting, both from the consumer side and the business side of the business. Yeah, we're pack animals. We like the communal viewing experience. Having said that, I think as we've seen over the last several years, the mid-budget movie, the star-driven vehicle, the rom-com, those are all being squeezed out of existence because audiences don't consistently show up to those in terms of theatrical release. It's more so we're going to see Fast and Furious, we're going to see Avengers, and the other ones will wait until they're available either on Blu-ray or on demand, what have you. But I do think we still yearn for connection. We still yearn for a communal viewing experience. And at the end of the day, when it's a quality product, man, nothing beats watching something with a group of other people who are all traveling on the same emotional wavelength and feeling this movie. 100%. But I also think too, maybe it's a good thing in the sense of when we look at the bombs from various years, 
usually in retrospect or even before they came out, we're like, how is that movie going to play in a theater? Like, does it make sense? And so a lot of movies went to the theater that were would have been better served, not only for the streamer, but exhibition as well. Yeah. They don't want to fill up a screens and see, you know, fill up screens with movies that aren't going to sell tickets. So maybe now it'll be a more strategic uh, plan in terms of what goes streaming, what goes to the big screen. And maybe that's a good thing. Look, I've talked about this ad nauseum for my whole life that, well, not my whole life, but a long time about my dinner with Andre. I'd love to see that in a movie theater, even though it's two guys sitting at a table in a restaurant. What is cinematic? What's cinematic to me may be different than to you. And then part of it is just the experiential part. Like, what's it just like to go in a theater, have your ticket stub ripped and go into the theater? That's so special. I think it's baked into our DNA, but things are changing. I'm very optimistic that at the end of all this, and you can disagree with me or you can agree with me. It's up to you, Brandon, that things will be better, not only for the consumer, but for businesses for whom this pandemic has brought to the forefront issues that were already on the back burner but we're brought to the front burner. If this is chestnut checkers, maybe down the road, this is a good thing ultimately for the industry. You know, out of all of this chaos is going to come something that will be ultimately good for the industry. But remember, we have to live through it right now. And that's the tough part. That really is to me anyway. Absolutely. What are your thoughts on that? I think before the pandemic, you are already starting to see smaller theaters convert to these luxury you know, nightlife experiences where you could get a good meal, you could have a nice drink. There was less seating, but these more comfortable luxury seats. And I do think that trend may continue. Whereas the essentially the business model for movie theaters hasn't changed for almost a hundred years. You get as many people as you can and you herd them into a dark room. And clearly what we've seen in the rise of the at-home entertainment era and the improvement of the peak TV era is that that business model, that status quo can't be maintained. So you have to change the experience. You have to tweak it. Like we've said, blockbusters will always have a place in multiplexes and probably always be profitable to a certain degree. But for those other movies, you got to change it up. You got to tweak the formula to keep us interested. And, you know, listen, Times like these is when innovation and opportunity arise. And I don't mean to downplay anything at all about the, this horrible pandemic. No, no. But if anything good can come yeah. out of this, it's that. It's it, what'd you say? Opportunity and innovation. And innovation. That's really true. Necessity is the mother of invention and all those great things. I mean, it's really true. And if we look back 20 years from now on, on this situation, it's going to be really interesting to analyze what happened and how it all changed everything. It's like a uh, just an unforeseen circumstance. But I want to move on because we're, we're getting near the bonus round, which I always love because I, uh, I think it's really interesting because I want to get to know you a little better. I'm going to start with the, the easiest one. What's your favorite movie? And I, I hate it when people ask me. I'm like, I have like 10 favorite movies. How can you name a favorite movie? What are those movies that really either spoke to you when you were growing up, now? What are those films? I'm sure Christopher Nolan, there's at least one of his movies in there. I like being put on the spot, Paul. I like this. You're putting me I like that on, too. And you know what? I'm LeBron James. I'm rising to the occasion. There you go. We're recording live. I like that. I would say that I would not be doing what I was doing if it weren't for the original Star Wars trilogy. I can guarantee you that. I saw the first ones when I must have been, I couldn't have been older than four or five years old. 
and I didn't know what was going on, but I knew that I loved it. I knew that it was moving and amazing and unlike I had anything I'd ever seen. I can tell you, number two, my first amazing, mind-blown theatrical experience. I was seven years old when The Matrix came out. Another oh, example wow. where seven years old, I had no idea what was going on, but I knew it was <laughs> unlike anything I had ever seen. I once interviewed Chad Stileski, who is the John Wick director and yeah. the stunt double for Keanu Reeves and stunt coordinator for the Matrix films. And I told him that anecdote. And he said, you know why? Because it evoked a feeling in you. You don't necessarily had to understand anything, but in the theater, you saying that you knew it was different from things you had seen, that's what storytelling is all about. If you can elicit that from an audience member, you've done your job. And I've never forgotten him telling me that because that obviously stuck with me for a long time. And then if I had to say what my favorite pound for pound movie is, Almost Famous. Oh, I love that movie. Phenomenal movie. I recently actually got to interview the star Patrick Fugit for the 20th anniversary of the film. But of course, it's about a 16 year old who goes on the tour with his favorite rock band because he's an aspiring journalist. Obviously, that spoke to me for, for many different reasons, not the least of which is his career path. But I think it's a beautiful film about finding yourself, about searching for meaning in a very complicated world. And it just has phenomenal performances across the board. Uh, I was in college, a fraternity in college. And one tradition is that your formal date paints a cooler for you. And my <laughs> date at the time knew I loved the movie. And she knew I loved this quote. And she painted it on the the cooler. The only currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're uncool. And I just think oh. that's a beautiful sentiment from a beautiful film. I love that. We're on parallel tracks in a sense because when I saw 2001 A Space Odyssey, which like The Matrix for my seven-year-old mind was very difficult to figure out, it was a formative experience. My dad was a rocket scientist, took my three sisters and I to the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood to see that movie. So I think that's really interesting. And then beyond that, almost famous. I remember going to the screening for that and it was a DreamWorks movie. And now one of my best friends, he's the one who introduced the movie. And I think that's actually how we became best friends. I went up to him and I go, this movie is my movie. Like did Cameron Crowe know this movie would give me goosebumps through the whole thing. So almost famous is one of my favorite movies. I also love Harold and Maude. Great film. Which is one of the greatest movies of all time. And I love music and vinyl albums. So I wanted that soundtrack on vinyl. It did not exist until Cameron Crowe put out a vinyl edition wow. on clear vinyl, green vinyl. There were just a few of them with some notes on the making of the movie of Harold and Maude, Hal Ashby directing, just an incredible movie. And so for Cameron Crowe, he was the curator. He was the shepherd who created a vinyl album out of the soundtrack of Harold Mudd, which had Cat Stevens right. on it, a lot of just great music. So I love that you loved Almost Famous because for me, that was a movie early in my career. They have trade screenings and you go early, you get to see the movie two months before it comes out or a month. And I just remember seeing that movie and I'm right there with you. Penny Lane, the, the yep. whole movie is brilliant. And uh, of course, the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, in that film. It's a perfect movie. I've been talking a lot lately to people about perfect movies and what I mean by a perfect movie. Cause to me, if you made the movie, it's perfect, but there are <laughs> movies that are really in a way perfect, like silence of the lambs who I talked with on one of my great guests last week, 
One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, another perfect movie. Godfathers 1 and 2, Almost Famous, is a perfect movie in my opinion. What is a perfect movie for you? Meaning the beginning, the middle, and the end all work perfectly and you don't leave there going, man, if they had just done this. What is the perfect movie? I love that you mentioned Silence of the Lambs and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest just because, fun fact, those are two of the three films to ever sweep the big five categories at the Oscars, the other of which was It Happened One Night in 1934. So there you go. That's why I'm talking yeah, to you right now. The critical community clearly agrees that those are perfect movies. I'm actually going to go with something a little bit more recent. I personally think Moonlight is one of the best movies of the last 25, 30 years. Totally agree. I think from start to finish, there's not a single wasted moment. There is not a single unintentional decision and not a single false note to be found in that film. And it just blows me away every single time I watch it. I I love it. Great choice. Perfect. Okay, so I know you're a big bourbon aficionado. Whiskey, bourbon, rye, or just put it in a blanket of whiskey. No, yeah, it's the whole umbrella, you know, category. Bourbon, whiskey, uh, rye. My older brother, he's actually the real connoisseur, and he has gotten me into it more and more. Now, my older brother is part of a, you know, bourbon Facebook group in which people talk about deals and they trade bottles and whatnot, but he lives in Chicago, and many of these people with these rare bottles that they're willing to sell are in New York. So he will he will have me essentially he'll be like, hey man, I need you to do me a favor. You need to take out twelve hundred dollars in cash and you need to meet this guy in New York City. <laughs> and it was so funny because there's nothing illegal about it. And yet when you are walking around it sounds bad. Yeah, when you're walking around with an envelope of cash in New York City, you automatically think you're up to no good, even though you're not doing anything wrong. So I have been his bourbon mule and he has actually taught me quite a bit. And it's really just becoming a really fun, great passion of mine. That is so cool, right? Because again, there are certain passions that we have that mean so much to us. And it can be as diverse as movies and bourbon, right? And there's a lot of great YouTube channels devoted to this, like Rolfie and the Whiskey Vault (laughs) and those guys. And some of these folks who I just watch and I'm like, they're like me, but they have a YouTube channel. And I think it's really important to, to share your passions with people because that's what brings us together. I mean, we're, we're getting to the end of our segment here and I would just love to have you tell everyone where they can find you on social media. Yes. The number one place is on Twitter at great underscore Catsby. Uh, you know, I'm essentially either talking about the streaming wars box office or saying why Donna is the best parks and rec character to have on your zombie apocalypse. <laughs> Those are kind of the topics I cover. And let's tease this next story of yours. I know you're doing something on a very little movie called Avatar. Can you talk a little bit about that? So earlier this week, James Cameron revealed that filming is complete on the long-awaited Avatar 2 and that he's about 95% done with Avatar 3. Of course, it's been more than a decade since the original came out and was for quite a long time until Avengers Endgame, the highest grossing movie of all time. That's right. I am very interested in how much audience demand and interest there is in a sequel that is essentially a decade late. And to kind of dig into what this film's prospects are, I talked to some very smart people such as yourself, Paul. Thank you. (laughs) I'm going to see how much money this movie can make. That's what I'm trying to dig in and find. We did speak about this. And and by the way, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, definitely look up this article 
because by the time this podcast is published, uh, Brandon's article will be on Observer. And talk about Observer real quick. Tell us about the outlet, where we can find Observer, all things related to your outlet. So Observer initially began as a legacy paper in, in the New York City in the 1980s. In about 2015 or 2016, as many other outlets have, it went all digital. So now you can find us at Observer.com. And what we're interested in is the power players of the industry, the movers and shakers of Hollywood, and the decision makers that essentially set the table for what becomes our tastes and our fads and our preferences of the year. So that's the things we type to kind of dig into. And interspersed in that is, of course, my nerdy theories about the latest Marvel blockbuster reveal or who I think is going to win best actor. So we, we kind of cover a wide spectrum of things, but some really, really good analysis, some really, really cool think pieces and reviews and some great business updates for those of you who are interested in learning more about the industry of entertainment. I love it. And and beyond that, I, I know you recently wrote a story about Fantastic Beasts, which got a lot of uh, retweets and a lot of attention. So definitely check that out. Well, Brandon, we got to wrap up. It was an absolute honor to have you on the program. I think after this, we should go have a drink virtually. And uh, thank you so much for being here. Your passion, your intellect, and just your enthusiasm for our industry and for entertainment in general is inspirational. Thank you for being here. I want to have you back on the show. Many screens, big picture. We're calm score with Paul DeGarabedian very soon. Thank you so much, Brandon. Or as I call you, the great Catsby. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. <laughs>